ICA presents. Hello, I'm Ellen Wartella, and welcome to this episode of the Architects of Communication Scholarship podcast series, a production of ICA Podcast Network. Today, our architect is Humero Zuniga. Humero Zuniga serves as Distinguished Research Professor at the University of Salamanca, as Media Effects Professor at Pennsylvania State University, and as Senior Research Fellow at Universidad Diego Portales, Chile. His work aims to shed an empirical social scientific light over how social media, algorithms, AI, and other technologies affect society. Relying on survey, experimental, and computational methods, his work seeks to clarify the way we understand some of today's most pressing challenges for democracies. With over a dozen books and nearly 130 index peer-reviewed journal articles, he has been named a Fellow of the ICA, recipient of the Kriegbaum Under 40 Award at the AEJMC, and has recently been identified as one of the most prolific scholars in political communication and social media, and one of the most bridging and central node communication scholars in Latin America. Today, Homero Zuniga will be in conversation with Teresa Correa. She is Associate Professor at Diego Portales University in Chile and Director of Research and Communication. And here is Teresa. Hello, I'm Teresa Correa. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Professor Homero Gilde Zuniga. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Thank you so much, Teresa. So just to start, tell us a little bit about your upbringing in Madrid, Spain, in the 80s and 90s, and then your initial steps into journalism, media, and communication. The upbringing in Spain, I think we all have fondest memories of our childhood, or most of us, and I assume that I'm not different in that regard. Probably the times in Spain were times in turmoil, politically speaking, because I was born in, in 1975, just when Franco, the dictator, just died. So my upbringing and my growing years, when I was a kid, it was the transition years, very convulsive years, lots of protesting and political activities, and the democracy, just like me, was an infant, and it was being established in Spain. So I do remember those years as years of freedom. I remember my parents waking me up when I was about seven years old to indicate to me that a new political party from the left has won the elections, which was unknown, having elections and a left party or a progressive party being in power when PSOE won the elections for the first time. Those are my first memories of, of my upbringing in Spain. And when it comes to communication, I think as many of us, we believe the transition of technology, particularly in heavier roots in Spain, as the country itself was being modernized, technology was not immune to this trend. So I have experienced all these changes when it came to labor and education. I could feel it in my education and I bring it to. That's part of what I was driven and interested in doing research in, in communication for the most part. But also my undergraduate was in journalism. I was interested in journalism. And um, in fact, I work initially in journalism, but I realized that it was not what really fulfilled my thriving goals in life. I wanted to learn more about it, but from a different angle, just rather than being a journalist, perhaps doing research upon what journalists do and why it matters from the lenses of democracy. But you did two doctoral programs. First, you did one in Spain, in political science, and then 
you moved to the U.S. and did one in mass communication at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So tell us a little bit about the journey from Spain to the U.S., why you did a political science program first and communication then, and how both have helped you in your career. Let me first start by saying that it was not planned. It looked like it was a very planned execution of some academic who wants to do the best. It just uh, happened organically. When I finished my undergrad and when I worked a little bit, I went back to school to study a master's in things that revolve with technology in Spain. And then an opportunity came along to pursue a PhD. But that time, the European Union and the progress and the democracy and all these things that were being discussed at the European level seemed to be very important in Spain. So there was a new program that was opened in a private institution, Universidad Europea de Madrid, European University at Madrid, that they were working on the European politics program. So accordingly, some of my professors at the time told me that was a very cool initiative. I was interested. They envisioned me as one of the potential successful students pursuing such academic task. So I started my PhD program, but as I advanced my political science program, I started to realize that my spin continued to be communication. It was clearly political communication. So the more I read and the more I learned, the more I realized that I had to also continue to study the side of communication where definitely my program was falling short. So that's why as I was advancing and pursuing the PhD program in Madrid, I realized that I probably should continue to learn more things about communication and what better place than the U.S. So I learned the language because I didn't speak any English back then. And then I tried to pursue a PhD program in the U.S., which ultimately happened in Wisconsin. So just for people or for the students who are thinking about doing such a journey or people who don't speak English, how did you do it? It was hard. I first went there and I spoke no English, so I ended up going to a very small town just to learn English, working in anything that had to do with uh, learning or practicing my English. I was able to live to some extent the American dream and move from job to job and progressing in my working career at that point, learning more English and, and developing my skills as someone working for the private sector. And ultimately, I realized that my English had improved, so I took the GRE, and then I eventually became competitive enough, or at least in my mind at that time, I think I'm ready to start a program in a good institution, which later on I found out that not at all because I didn't understand many of the things that I was being exposed to. And it took me a while to react. I'm convinced that half of my professors my first year probably thought this guy is, is useless or doesn't speak because it took time for me to understand what they were talking about and trying to put order in my mind the time that I express something meaningful, they were discussing something else. So I remained quiet for the most part of my first year. Now, as an advice, I would tell others to try and be persistent and learn. None of us know everything. In fact, none of us know much. We keep learning every day. I would invite everyone who has the thrive, the energy, and the interest to pursue their dreams. And if they want to study in the U.S., fight hard for it and just learn the language. Very similar to what you did, Teresa. You fought very hard and you pursue your PhD in a great institution in the U.S. So I would invite others, international scholars, to do the same. It's just a matter of persistence. Exactly. So 
when you started, who would you say were your most important mentors? And what did they teach you? So my mentors back in Spain, I had several mentors, but they came from either political science or sociology. When I told them that I wanted to do communication, empirical communication in Spain was mostly unknown, if not completely unknown. For the most part, today, I think it's picking up more universities and more programs which devote time and energy in pursuing more quantitative or empirical communication studies. I indicated to my professors then and my mentors that I wanted to study more communication when it comes to politics, but more communication. They would say, oh, so you're reading Gregory Bateson. And they would give me a book about Gregory Bateson. And I remember reading this guy and he blew my mind. I was like, whoa, this guy's so smart and interesting. But clearly, a very different type of scholarship that we're used to do these days. Or similarly, I remember reading books by Karl Watzwitz and trying to understand what communication meant from a social psychology perspective. So those were the figures that I was reading at the beginning. And then as, as I continued, to, to read and learn. I learned about Lasserfeld and other scholars. So those were initially the people that I comprehend a little bit. But the more I read, the more I realized that things were happening in the U.S. So when I moved to the U.S. and I was about to start my program in Wisconsin, in Madison, I was very excited to the prospect that maybe I was going to work with Jack McLeod, who was there. And eventually his son, Doug McLeod, now a good friend of mine, took a step and said, okay, I'll be your mentor, I'll be your advisor. And then after a few months, he realized that I was not learning much of what was this guy doing. Or it was me who realized that I was not going or advancing as much as I was hopeful to. I changed to a relatively unknown advisor back at that time. His name is Davan Shah, and um, he's a very well-known scholar, but I was one of his first initial PhD students. So what did they teach you? What do you remember one or two things that stuck in your mind that you really practice now or you try to teach to young scholars now? There's something that I don't think can be taught, which is the notion of you having interest and curiosity. If you have that, in my mind, you have 50% done. If you're curious about something, it has to be something that you like, but nobody can tell you what to be curious about. But if you have curiosity about something, it can be an abstract topic, a theme, something that triggers interest to you that you have half of the way done. And then the other half of the way is what I learned from my mentors, colleagues and students. We don't say this quite often, but also students who might be a little farther up in the road in the program. And to me, I had two clear mentors that way, Orlando Rojas, a professor in Wisconsin. When I was starting my master's and my PhD program, he was already a PhD student. So he was three years ahead of me. And similarly, Chaho Cho, a professor in University of California, Davis, he was also three years ahead of me. So I learned from them. And the things that they taught me, follow your interests, read a lot, also practice, and don't be afraid of screwing up. And that's what I did. I asked questions, and if I came across as a little idiot, it wouldn't bother me because I was learning. And what was clear to me is I remained silent. I wouldn't learn anything at all. If I just nod, if someone told me, oh, this paper discussed this and this methodology, and I just nod like I understood, I wouldn't learn much. But if I ask and I say, what do you mean with relation? What do you mean by regression? Well, then they will tell me, you need to take a class, but what it means is this, and I will learn more and more. So as I said, probably some of the advice that I learned from my own mentors would be that, follow your curiosity and feed it. 
just uh, keep learning and read and don't be afraid of committing mistakes and asking questions. It's all about that. In the end, we are participants of an academic conversation with others, even when we publish. So you can't be afraid of participating. You need to talk, ask questions and keep reading. Since you started teaching and doing research, how has your vision changed since you started in the 2008? Probably I'm older now and less of an optimistic guy. And uh, part of that initial optimism has dissipated also because of the consistent findings that we as a field also found, also reached. So for the most part, in the beginning of my research, I also always wanted to highlight, hopefully, positive aspects of technology to generate a better democracy, a more inclusive democracy, in which all of us who have a better chance and a more meaningful chance of participating. And we found some good and interesting findings when it comes to technology and social media, etc. But also the more research that was conducted and the different types of research and and different notions in terms of uses and effects and motivations and so forth, we realized that the effects were not so simple, they're much more complicated, and that not everything is so bright. So ultimately, within time, I came to be perhaps a little bit less optimistic when it comes to sheer effects of technology and social media, for instance. So what are the main questions that you currently have regarding that? I do understand that, for instance, when it comes to social media and other technologies, now we're talking about algorithms and AI, artificial intelligence, etc. There's no such thing or just specific types of effects. Like, this is going to be good, this is going to be bad. We're realizing that there are many different things happening at the same time. So that's why in many instances I talk about asymmetrical effects. Because one behavior with technology or, or within social media, on the one hand, may actually bring upon good effects or desired outcomes on society and democracy, but those very same uses or behaviors simultaneously may also bring upon deleterious effects for society. So it's not that easy. The questions that occupy my mind is, how can we more efficiently highlight or isolate what specific paths will bring a better society and a better democracy? So either way, by highlighting the effects that work, or also by identifying and perhaps proposing ways to mend and correct potential negative effects that technology and social media may also bring to democracy. Regarding your specific scholarship or expertise, which ones would you like to contribute? All the things that I've been doing, either theoretically or empirically, we find things when we try to explain a phenomenon when it comes to technology and democracy, at least for me, my goal, my ultimate objective is to create a better world. So a world in which we all citizens can participate better in democracy, we can all become more informed, and that we generate a healthier society. And this sometimes, in the beginning of my career, translated, perhaps even simplistically, to the idea of more participatory society. And then over the years, I realized that it was not only participation, that there are many other things behind. So we could not solely equate political participation or activity with a healthier democracy. Now we're talking more about an informed public opinion because otherwise that participation may be ill-informed. What I would like to achieve is to create both solid informed 
theoretical models and empirical models that generate a better society, a more participatory society, but also more informed, more civic. Part of it is not only political participation, but social capital, civic engagement. So how can we also generate better neighborhoods? How do we help each other? What are the conditions in which we decide to be nice to each other? They may look simple, but they don't have a simple answer. That's true. So this podcast is called Architects of the Communication Scholarship. Um, in that regard, what have you built or what have you designed? If you ask me modestly, I would say I haven't built anything. But when I retire, I want to be able to say, look, my little brick is there. And there are many bricks that come in beyond me to influence or at least open the path so they can reach their own goals and be their own architects of this world, of this figure that we're building. Similarly, I think I take pride in people like you, one of my best students and some other fantastic students that I had over the years and postdocs that eventually when I look back, if I haven't built any long-lasting theory or finding forever, at least we've been able to contribute to a stronger discipline just by generating knowledge. To finish this conversation, you're a fan of classic rock. So if you have to choose a song or a band or an album that reflects upon the conversation that we have had regarding the field of communication or your trajectory, which one would you choose and why? Yeah, I'm going to go with Inagada La Vida, Iron Butterfly, because it's exactly what this conversation seems to be. It seems to be a never-ending conversation that at some parts of the song may even sound like it's the same thing over and over, but if you pay attention to it, particularly when you're relaxed and when you have interest on it, you will realize that there are lots of different nuances and parts of the song that make total sense, and they go together in many different and interesting ways. Great choice. Thank you, Omero, for this great conversation. Thank you, Teresa. It's been an honor, and I can just tell how proud I am of you and uh, your career. You have become a stellar, astonishing star in the field, so I just can't wait to welcome among the fellows in ICA very soon. This episode of Architects of Communication Scholarship podcast series is presented by the International Communication Association Podcast Network and the Wee Kim Wee School of Communication and Information at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. Our producers are Jabari Clemens and Lacey Yao. Our executive producer is Devante Brown. The theme music is by Humans Win. For more information about our participants on this episode, as well as our sponsor, be sure to check the episode description. Thanks for listening.